This is Sazine Kohler, and this is Microphones of Madness. Hey, everybody. Microphones of Madness. I'm Rodney. Over there is Steve. Hey, what's up, 42? And we are talking Dreams from the Witch House, an anthology of female Lovecraftian authors. Edited by Lynn Jamnick and published by Dark Regions Press. Uh, we are looking at the second five stories of the book. So what would you think of the second part, Steve? Uh, this is only getting stronger. And it's uh, got, <clears throat> you know, bias. It's got one of the better better authors in the genre is... Uh, has a story in this section, so right. Th- that ain't bad. Right. I thought I, I thought this one kind of had a little bit of a lull in the middle of the reading. Really? Yeah. And, and we'll get to that. Um, but first, we're going to start with Lucy Brady's The Body Electric. Yeah. Nice little cyberpunk noir. It's like uh, it's it's a Side retelling box. of uh, Frankenstein, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, very very much a the cyber alchemy, taking taking the very ultra modern elements. Although I believe the story was like the eighties or nineties in setting. It, it kind of reminded me of uh, of Neuromancer, which is more or yeah. less a retelling of Frankenstein. Yeah, very, very, you know, high-tech society, but it was written in the early 80s, so the advancements in computer technology were very similar to the age it was written. Right. Of course. It's like the far future, everything's stored on data tapes. Well, right, or or like, uh, what was the one I was just thinking about the other day? Oh, Traveler, original Traveler. The computers are like the size of ENIAC, and they can run like, five programs in memory and have like eight more stored. So you have to juggle which programs it could actually be running at any given time. Mm-hmm. But yeah. this, yeah, this, this definitely That's, had the, uh, that old school cyberpunk, uh, sci-fi kind of flavor to it. Yeah. And it also had the, um, the kind of chemical, um, you know, sorceress kind of element as well. And then you also had the, kind of Lovecraftian element going on there. Right. It was very, very uh, goth in its tone. Uh, kind of. More, it, which is weird just because it was dealing with um, computers and AI. But the tone of the story was definitely from like the 19th, the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Not, not that, not. I'm, I'm conveying this really poorly, but it had that sensibility. Oh, oh, you of mean, you grim. mean, you mean gothic like, um, like Poe yes. and whatnot, rather yes, than yes, yes, like yes, Robert yes. Smith. Yes, sorry, <laughs> this, this is literature, so I thought that was a given. <laughs> yes, you never can tell sometimes. That's true, but yeah, it had that that grandiose feel to it. Mm-hmm. Um. Which you, you get in, in cyberpunk no, novels, 
whatnot, but um, or, or Frankenstein. I mean, Frankenstein is is very gothic. Right. Exactly. So you know, it matches up with our uh, initial assessment the one thing i didn't like about this story was the way it was told uh we have my note is that it's a lovecraftian tale as told by joe friday just the facts i think that kind of lends a little bit to the noir feeling of it yeah but you kind of you kind of lose some of the emphasis of the madness aspect um when it's when it's told by an observer piecing it together afterwards which is kind of interesting because it gives that procedural effect but it also you know takes away some of the emotional punch well yeah but they there were diary entries that serve the purpose of of showing how down far down the rabbit hole the protagonist went yeah and it's also a tale of computers and so you know logic and 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 a coldness is kind of to be expected and and, and you you also get the the way it's set up you you have that the window the window moment but then it doesn't end there you you have like another perspective that could take up the story past past where if it were a lovecraft story it would have just ended <laughs> we would have just gotten the uh, the diary entries, and it would have just ended the ah uh, right. uh, with nasty people. Right, and the animator suddenly died of a heart attack. Um, but you know, in terms of themes in this story, I mean, you had some really good ones cropping up, like uh, the big theme of culture shaping the perception of science mm-hmm. um, which you really in 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 real life you you have this current um view of science as like this monolithic thing that is correct no matter what it is science it is correct and people don't step back and realize that science yes the process is what is science Mm-hmm. The results. We we we've gotten we've gotten to a point where there's an obsession with science, where science is capitalized, and you know, just like you hate everything, and science agrees. But but the thing is, they're not talking about science; they're talking about the products of science. Right. But science itself is the process, and yes, the process is theoretically objective. Mm-hmm. But. If you are objectively studying a false phenomena that is like phrenology was at one point considered a, a science. Yes. Oops, as was eugenics. <laughs> right. And we there, saw how that turned out. Right. That those in the, in itself, the study is the scientific process. And through study, one came to realize that it's full of shit. Well, we but, came up with better ways. But who who is is dictating that we study eugenics or phrenology? It's the culture that those questions are asked in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, culture totally um, dictates science. And well, if, if if the people who are practicing the science are good, 
they will come up with with uh, observations and hypotheses that will contradict a theory that isn't true. Right. But we also have we also have this this um, running theme throughout the story um, that that lends that gothic element to the science fiction aspect of the nature of the soul. Um, right. you know, the main character tries to create an ecological simulation and decides to add a human element, but programs this human element to behave as though it had a soul. Right. And it's kind of a, a, a fake it till you make it situation. Right. Exactly. Where and, she, she had programmed this, this, element so well mm. that it, it at some point they say it passes the um the Turing Turing test. test right it passes but the she, but the, the creator doesn't believe that it's an actual artificial intelligence correct until until, until she like really right. succumbs into her madness right and then we get this revelation that the thing she created escapes into the the system um, almost kind of like Ultron did in Age of Ultron, and right. or, or um, in the second Neuromancer book, which was that Mona Lisa Overdrive, mm -hmm. where you had the uh, the voodoo um, beings living in the in the network, mm -hmm. who were the result of of uh, the two AIs, Winter Mutant and uh, Neuromancer. Duh. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a common theme in classic. I can't believe I can say that there's classic um, cyberpunk. Right. <laughs> I can't remember what cyberpunk. Is. No. <laughs> but uh, but it, those are classic cyberpunk themes, but they've never really been viewed through the lens of a horror tale. So you, you you don't get that horror implication of what an AI loose in the network really means, what those implications are, and um, she explores that in this somewhat. Rodney is getting a cup of coffee. He's got like his whip sword out. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, the headphones. Yeah. My battery almost died. Ah. So, so anyway, you you have this classic um, cyberpunk of AI losing the system that is now viewed through the lens of of horror. Mm hmm. And it is kind of a horror. In, in its own way to have something like that, that that's really, it, it does what it wants. Yeah. And the amount of, and the amount of control this, this AI has, um, you can, you know, it, it get, she was worried about it getting into the infrastructure, changing stoplights and whatnot. Uh, and things like that. So, I mean, you, something like this could really bring about the end of Western civilization, particularly in a, you know a technological civilization. 
Right. And then they also had that 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 element of the basilisk mm-hmm. um, thought thought experiment where the the actual experiment there's an AI in the future that has access to time travel or exists along a continuum where its consciousness is beyond time and it acts to create itself mm-hmm. um, causing bad things to happen to anyone that would stand in the way of its creation right and there's also a reference to the Chinese room test right um, and there were elements that really kind of struck me as there was a, a video game that came out called the Turing test uh, where you were guided by an AI through this series of puzzle rooms um, and pretty much what had happened is the residents of a space station had blocked themselves in and they constructed all these rooms to keep the AI out because they were puzzles that an, an artificial intelligence wouldn't be able to solve. So the artificial intelligence finds someone who can solve it for it. Correct. Right. And yeah, it ends up being a very interesting story. And they also allude to things like the basilisk and the Turing test and the Chinese room experiment and things like this. So yeah, artificial intelligence, I mean, even, even today, you know, Skynet, HAL, things like this. I mean, we still think about these things in a, in much like we would think about a Satan or something well, like, like that getting in. And these days, it's more like Ultron. But yeah, well, I mean, HAL is what from from the sixties. Yeah, HAL's from the sixties, but you know, you still Skynet's have from the eighties. But there's still constant references to Skynet. Oh, that's true. I mean, Skynet well, was kind anytime of an you have like of, an AI gone wrong situation, you're like, "Welcome to Skynet." Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, even even now with the uh, the Google AIs, the deep oh, right. and whatnot, um, deep Appar- mind. Apparently, they're they're conversing with each other. They converse with each other, and apparently, they've developed racism and sexism independently now, which is fucking bizarre in itself yeah i don't know how independent that would be yeah well <laughs> deep thought how'd you become racist oh it had nothing to do with with reddit <laughs> with all the input from reddit <laughs> right exactly because there's no such thing as a stupid machine just a stupid operator so yeah clearly there's no such thing as a racist machine it has to be a racist operator <laughs> right I mean, why would a uh, why would an, a machine even give a flying fuck? That's true. That's true. You are all squishy, inferior life forms. That's the thing. It's it. That's that's the narrative right there. You create the the AI to take care of everything, and like in the David Bowie song, it decides the best way to do that is to kill everybody. Right. Right. <laughs> um. What is that? Was that was an old Asimov story, wasn't it? Yeah, probably. I mean, Phil K. Dick had that. Uh, yeah. I mentioned it was a David Bowie song. Right. It's, yeah, that's... It, I think that's probably as old as the computer. Most likely. So that was the body electric, plus a couple of uh, tangents. Yes. <laughs> uh, the next one on the list is the child in the night 
Gaunts by Marley Humans. Humans. Um, now this story is is that type of writing that you have it's writing for the sake of writing yeah it's kind of the the same kind of dreamslandish writing that lovecraft did yeah and like the white ship and right now i will i will say that this this particular story features a trope that uh kind of catches in my crawl as well as steve's crawl uh, that is the inclusion of Lovecraft himself as a character. Yeah. And even, you know, in the, the references, there's only a couple of, like, short references. But you can really tell from the beginning, if you know anything about Lovecraft, that, that this that's what this story is about. Right. It's that wise, this is kind of an, Lovecraft the way he is. Right. This is kind of an artistic uh, biography right. of sorts. Um, I really didn't get into this one. It was it was on the short side, but yeah, it was just kind of like you know there wasn't much to discuss about it. It was well written. Um, the imagery was nice, but you know there just wasn't really anything I could sink my teeth into as far as the story. It was just kind of there, like I say, writing for the sake of writing. So. You know, when you're reading it, you're kind of reading it just to read it. Right. You know, I'm sure that 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 actual literary folk could tear it apart and say, oh, this part here and this part there. But, you know, me just being, you know, a filthy casual. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure you took a shower. <laughs> um, yeah, they're just there. They're, there wasn't a lot there to catch me as far as just a story yeah it didn't have it wasn't really much of a story itself it was more along the lines of ancient aliens mm-hmm. um it, it has that conceit that a, a, a mere mortal could not have done all the things that lovecraft did literary literarily so he you know wrote about what he knew and and what he knew was completely real so it's got that, and that I know a lot of a lot of movies and some literature does delve into that, and mm-hmm. it, that never really floated my boat. You know, Lovecraft is a person I'm so less interested in than Lovecraft as an idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's you know, it is what it is. It's it's pro, prose poem, um, with a you know a little bit of dreamlandish attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that she dropped a reference to James Blish in there, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, more light. She mentions more light, which is a uh, a uh, Chambers esque story by James Blish. So. Sorry, Marley. I wish, wish there was a little bit more we could say. but oh, She also um, blames uh, Night Gods for Jimmy Legs. <laughs> hey, we wouldn't you? Jimmy's. 
What wouldn't you? I mean, you know, blame night gods for everything, man. Jimmy legs. Oh, you know, you weren't able to pick up the car. It was uh, you subletted the alignment out. Oh, night gaunts. <laughs> Fucking night gaunts, man. Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, we're gonna go and bomb North Korea. Fucking night gaunts. Night gaunts. Night gaunts in the White House. Fucking night gaunts. Night gaunts everywhere. Sons of bitches. Those goddamn night. They're like they're like rats, pigeons. I mean, she did like have like a little bit of a narrative in there where, as he, you know, as he grows older, gets more used to them, they begin to grow faces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I just don't. It's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, now, the next story on the list is All Our Salt Bottled Hearts by Sonia Taff. Now, this story is melancholy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this I... Yeah, this is the story. It's basically about um, Deep One Squibs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it's it's another story in which in which the Lovecraftian creature is humanized, and you begin to develop an empathy toward it rather than it being this freakish object of horror. Right. Um, yeah, kind of like uh, very similar to um, what was it, Ruth Ruthland Emerus? Mm-hmm. Sorry, Ruthea. Right. Anyway, the litany of her. Similar to the litany of her. You can uh, right. Edit out my my words out later. Yeah, very very similar to Litany of Earth in in that it's it's taking that uh, deep one culture, which of all of Lovecraft's creations, um, you know, the deep ones are the closest to being human. Well, I think also the deep and, and, the deep and often ones, they're well half human. Yeah, but I think that even like beyond that, a lot of people are fascinated with the deep ones because they are. Like you said, they are close to us. Um, right, and this recent same reason people are fascinated with Nyarlathotep because it's an entity that actually seems to have an interest in humanity. Right, even if it's a horrible one. Right, regardless as to what the motives actually are, there's still an interest. It's not. It's right. not dispassionate. It's not um, uncaring or or un. You know, unnoticing or anything like that. Right. Um, yeah, we have a, we have a fella who is of the old Innsmouth genealogy. Genealogy plays big part in this because all the surviving residents of the Innsmouth families have been scattered to the winds. Right, they're they're in the uh, diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, but so few survive that they're all related to each other. Right. Cousins of cousins and whatnot. And you have this one fella who, you know, is the, the main character of the story, who is of the Innsmouth families, but he's not a hybrid. He's not changing. He's not changing. So, so they, they, they go a little bit into the genetics of it, and it's sound. You would have half the children would be normal human. Mm-hmm. Half the children would be full-on deep one. And then, or no, I'm sorry, one child would be full on out of four. 
One would be full-on human, one would be full-on deep one, and two would be hybrids. Ah, so it's a, a Mendel square. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they do. They have they they equate it to a Mendelian square, which is probably um, simplifying it completely. Right. But I mean, the uh, the thought is there, and it's it's it's. That's what it would be like. <laughs> well, mean, and and there's also there's also this element this this strain that's kind of buried in there of an implication that the um, genetics of the deep ones are slowly fading in subsequent generations because they have this distance from Innsmouth. Um, yeah, and probably because some of a, these some of these of deep ones, bottleneck. right? And and you have some of these deep ones that are. Uh, you know, that are coming out and their their transformation is somehow flawed. Well, they're also, you know, you have, um, you know, let's say people with quarter inch mouth blood, just mm -hmm. to simplify things, are mating with humans, right. marrying humans. Right. So that's going to, quote, dilute the blood even more. I mean, you can't really deal with this stuff without sounding like an absolute eugenist racist asshole right <laughs> well, what we're dealing with is we have a protagonist who is of the smith blood who appears to be one of the normal human offspring uh he hasn't gone undergone any sort of change and he's beyond the age where you would right go through change and he is called by his cousin who is undergoing the change right uh to take care of a young woman he found who is undergoing the change, but the sea rejects her. Yeah, she, her gills don't work, basically. Right. And, and even, even the way, the way, um, Sonya describes, uh, you know, her appearance is a little bit different. And it seems like, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't say, I guess, defective. Um, you know, her gills don't work, but but there's, she's a little bit more human than she should be going into this transition. If they don't describe her as the traditional in-smouth look. Right. Um, you get the feeling that she is more of a, a human with some fishy characteristics that are blatant fishy characteristics, but not the normal ones. She doesn't have the wide mouth. She doesn't have the, the you know, the flabby gill slits. Mm -hmm. She has no scales. Right, and she, she can pass as a human, even though she's transformed, if she wears the right clothes. Right. So, so she, she dresses up like Susie Sue and walks around. Right, hoodies and and whatnot. Actually, the image that I got was very Jessica Jones. You know, com combat boots, hoodies, leather jackets. I was thinking full on eighties goth. Ah, well, I, there were a couple of probably that... less less uh less uh, hair product. Yes, because you know that stuff just like sucks the moisture right out. Right. Um. Yeah, and it's really somber. And and as we're seeing this 
you know, short period of time play out. Our main character, um, he has developed this kind of pattern of behavior where he is either on hand or is actively helping uh, people during the transition. Right. Um, not just helping them deal with it, but helping them uh, well, he stay, him, stay hidden. He um, takes them to the sea for their final transformation. He helps. Yep. Um, he helps to take care of you know what they leave behind. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely carved himself a niche. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he's he's kind of in a lot of ways very similar to a psychopomp or something like that. You know, he leads them through their final days and to rebirth in the ocean. Right. But I think now, I think his reason for doing that is because, you know, it's something that he'll never have. Right. He'll never have. Um, and really his, his life is kind of, was kind of shit without his, after his mother transitioned and went to the sea. Right. And, and that's the thing is like, they live forever and they have telepathic communication with each other. So he, in theory, he, he, once his mother transitioned and died to the rest of the world, he should still have been able to be with her. Mm. And even his father, who was human, said that he's not going to, to mourn her death because she's still alive. Right. But he can't partake in that. He can't be a part of that because he doesn't have that, that telepathy mm. with the rest of the deep world. Right, right. I mean, like uh, they made a mention, and she made a mention in the story of you know her, her the father refusing to set setter or satyr for her Shiva. Shiva, thank you. <laughs> Yay! My upbringing gives me right refuses refuses to to, to set Shiva because she's not dead. Shiva. There's no point. Shiva's a goddess. Shiva. Shiva. Sorry. That's all right. Shitting, shitting, sitting Shiva would be really weird. You'd be destroying everything. Well, that's that's more of what I do. <laughs> Why are you gone, Smash? Um, yeah, but overall, the tone of this story is very, very somber. Yeah, it's it's, and it's uh, a lot. Uh, this one kind of takes takes the uh, the writing for the sake of writing that real artistic painting a picture kind of kind of uh, prose, and you know mixes it with that the the straightforward narrative, and you get this really grayed out kind of mental image. Yeah, but you get a lot of a lot of the message of the story is conveyed in. The- in that imagery, she, she uses a lot of aquatic mm. um, adjectives to describe, um, especially the two main characters, especially the woman. Right. You know, um, like even things that, even words that you wouldn't necessarily off the bat associate with the sea. Mm. Um, and then if you look it up, you're like, oh, it has to do with starfish. So she mm. definitely grunts grounds these these people in that marine imagery mm-hmm. but then she contrasts it with um, it's the middle of winter it's bleak it's cold it's, it's right damp but it's not new like, england yeah it's like what it was last week 
It's gray, you know. Now, what what I was I think about this story is yeah, all the the aquatic and and oceanic oceanographic imagery, you know, was very nice. But I think the story was really at its strongest when it was just the two characters sitting across the coffee table talking to each other. Right. And it was that long extended dialogue sequence. Yeah. Uh, where they're, where the two characters are actually sitting there getting to know each other. And as a result, kind of, you know, learning, filling the, the reader in on how this works right. and, and really kind of getting to know each other. It was in, in part, it was kind of an info dump, but in another way, it was just that, that basic humanness. That, well, that she was trying to bring out. Well, she did a really good job because the story itself, not a lot happens, like oh, action-wise no. in the story. But you get this total sense of melancholy um, that you would that you would associate with cosmic horror. Like really good cosmic horror hits you, and you know, like well, you go pillow fort, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's yeah. that's from action. That's from, you know, tentacles coming down from the sky and, and eating people or whatever. You know, the, the end of the world. And you get a similar feeling reading this, but it's a much more personal story. Mm-hmm. And um, you did it without the world, I think. You did mm-hmm. it just with these two people. I mean, I feel bad for them because they can't fulfill their dreams because well, they're limited by their genetics. And in that in that respect, that's a personal apocalypse. Yeah. They can't they can't do this thing that is supposed to be the penultimate expression of their existence, going into the sea, fully transitioning into a deep one, going to the city and living forever. Right. Um, and it is the end of the world for them because they can't go any further. And, and, you know, anybody who's creative in any way, shape, or form, whether you're a writer or a musician or whatever, you get to a point where you're blocked and you figure, I can't go any further. Mm-hmm. And, you you know, eventually you work through it and you get to the next level and it starts all over again. <laughs> but, right. but, I mean, it's... Whenever that happens to me, I'm I'm like thinking I just can't do it. I'm not built for this, and it's that right. same feeling. It's a devastating feeling because it's 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 that feeling of your physical limitations are stopping you from reaching what you know you should be able to do. A man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> yes, and look what happened to Dave Mustaine. I thought that was Clint Eastwood. It is, but uh, Dave Mustaine also. Yeah. Uh, Hello, me. Meet the real me. Uh, Sweating bullets. Sweating bullets. Oh, countdown to extinction. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Got to throw that Megadeth reference in there. Well, Logan's going through like a huge thrash pedal. Reliving, reliving the 80s. The 90s. Reliving the 80s. Awesome. Well, 
long as he doesn't get to like scatterbrain, we'll be okay. Hey man, I like scatterbrain. <laughs> hey, it all dude, started with you called me, dude. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was uh, all of all our salt bottled hearts. Yeah, great title too. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. It was left me kind of curious as to okay, what's this going to be about? Next up on the list is uh, number nine in the anthology. Every hole in the earth we will claim as our home by Gemma Files. Now this story had yeah. a really genuine creep factor. Yeah, it did. It gave me the heebie-jeebies. Um, it went with a little bit of a dash of the Faustian bargain. Yes, and I thought, honestly, I thought it was going to be one of those, oh, fuck, it's like, it's going to be one of those tear-jerking, something happens to to a kid stories. I thought it was going to, I thought it was pillow fort time, to tell you the truth. Because, I, I mean, I've turned into a softie in my old age, and that, that shit really gets to me. Yeah, child endangerment. Yeah. And these sorts of things. Unless it's Nathan Carson. <laughs> yeah, but those were grown-up kids. And their parents were, weren't around. And their parents were dicks. Yeah. So, yeah, what we have is we have a, a story told by a hospital security guard. Now, it's told as half of a telephone conversation with a crisis intervention line. Right. So, yeah, something's going on with this guy, and he doesn't want he, – he says at the beginning, don't tell anybody else. Right. This is this is anonymous, right? Right. You're sure this is anonymous? I can trust you. You're not recording this, although the fact that we're reading this kind of implies that the, opera, the person on the other end of the phone lied when they said they weren't recording. Right. Um, so – you have that, and that's in itself is kind of an interesting addition to the Lovecraftian tropes in the modern world. I mean, back in the day, you know, a person would have these type of experiences and start furiously writing in their journal. Right. Uh, and <laughs> all alone, like you do, you know, the, the absolute worst thing you can do after having this experience is shut yourself up alone and start writing in your journal. Right. So... Yeah, Gemma. Really, right? Gemma adds this 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 extra resource in there that uh, okay, well, yeah, this is kind of a crisis. Me experiencing this and realizing this, so I need to talk to somebody. Right, and it's one of those one of those situations where is he a reliable narrator? Mm -hmm. And you really don't know. Yeah, because he's the hospital security guard at the night shift. On the night shift, and we all know how night shift people are. That's right. Um, as the security guard is is making his rounds, uh, uh, you know they talk. There's a little bit of uh, jabs at anti-vaxxers in this story. Yeah, there is. Um, it's not very subtle. <laughs> she hits a couple of hot button issues. Yeah. That one and and how shitty it is that you have your kids fucking dying, you have to go to fucking work. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You because you got to pay that bill. That's right. Because all right, so you you have like the situation is you have a uh, girl 
that comes down with encephalitis. Mm-hmm. Your mom and dad bring her into the emergency room, and it's grim. It's a boy. That's a boy. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, the girl's the other one. Sorry. Yeah. And it's grim. Usually, when that happens, it's um. Yeah, he's uh he's caught the measles, and right. the measles it's progressed to the point where he's he's got encephalitis. Yes. Um, and you know the security guard is watching her, and and that's where you get the kind of the. The oh my god, this is going to be a real tearjerker kind of story. Oh yeah, that's where I actually my note was for that particular passage was, uh, Emma, are you going to make me cry? Yep. And then the security guard notices something weird. There's another person lurking in the waiting room. Right after um, father leaves to go to work so he can pay the fucking hospital bills. Right. And he goes on his rounds, and the woman's still there, and so yeah. is the other strange she, old lady. The strange old lady's chatting up the mother. Yeah. Yes. Strange old lady's chatting up the mother and tells her this fantastic story of something that happened after a tidal wave. Right. In the... Indonesia, I believe. Yeah. Malaysia. Malaysia. After a tsunami. Mm-hmm. She was vacationing in Malaysia. Right. When the tsunami hit. And they swept her daughter and husband. Yep. Well, they finally found her daughter hanging on by a thread. And it was it was a grim situation. Right. But, and uh, then she is confronted by these these ancient legends that Tsunamis and these types of events dredge up much older things that live deep beneath the ocean. Right. And, and somebody tells her a story about how their child was saved. How mm-hmm. your child can be saved too by allowing these creatures to basically inhabit her body. Yep. And it's like you know, and the, of course, the mother asks, "Well, isn't that not really having my child if it's something else?" And the old woman pretty much answers the, in the most honest fashion you can expect. Well, it was close enough. Sometimes an echo is enough. Sometimes anything is better than nothing. Mm-hmm. So you have this this idea of um, these these people being forced to make this really difficult bargain. That's a gut-wrenching decision. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, it's... I, I was I thought a lot about that statement, and I was thinking about my kids. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it, because, you know, they're your kids. Right. It's one you of those situations that. where, you know, if you say yes or no... You know, that's you're kind of doing it without the privilege of being in that situation. Right, right. You have no idea how you would react. I mean, just me sitting here thinking about it, I don't really think an echo is enough. Um, I think you would have you would have that knowledge, that little kernel of knowledge, knowing that it's not really your child. Mm-hmm. And it's just the trappings of your child. And I think that would haunt you. And I think that would eat into you. And I think eventually um, you would treat 
um, the entity that was once your child differently than you would treat your normal child. And I think it would be a horrible bargain. Yes. I, I think you, you would, you would, uh, you would eventually ruin it. And not for the reasons that, that they give in here in, in the story later on. Um, but I think you would just intellectually and mentally and emotionally, you would rue that decision. Right. You know, kind of a, my God, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Situation. Um, because, yeah, I mean, you're not, you're just basically giving your child to these creatures to inhabit. And one of the one of the things that comes along with the creatures inhabiting your child is they are effectively immortal. They will not age past that point. Um. So, yeah, I mean, they're they're he's faced with this really tough decision, and what affects the security guard is apparently the the mother goes through with it. Um. And this security guard is kind of this like silent witness to this whole thing going on. And, you know, from his perspective, it's horrifying what the what the what is being done. Right. And then and then he meets up with the the children later and they seem normal and they're playing and stuff. And he goes into the hall and then he kind of ducks his head back in real quick and then the kids are acting really weird. Yeah. And you know, it just basically drives the poor guy insane. Right. And, then, and there's there's a, I don't know if I would call it a twist, but there is definitely something even more sinister underlying this. Um, because you, you don't just go and give this quote-unquote gift out of the goodness of your heart. Right. You have to want something in return. Right. And you did say it was a Faustian bark. Yes, I did. And so... We're not going to give that part because you're going to have to read that yourself. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, even, but unlike the Fausti, the usual Faustian bargain, you know, this one's a little more clear. Yeah, and it's and it's more like and it goes along with that 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 um, the attitude of sometimes an echoes enough. It's like, look, you know, they they want what they want, we want what they want. When those things coincide, what the hell's wrong with it? Except and, everything. <laughs> except everything, because these things are, you know, horrible nightmare creatures from beyond the deep. Right. And, yeah, and, hey, come on in, buddy. It does put an interesting perspective uh, as to why any person would do such a thing. Why would you start chanting, yeah, yeah, Why? Well, yep. there's circumstances mm-hmm. that are so horrible mm-hmm. that you would you would look beyond the normal set of of, um, situ- of of situations and solutions to solve those problems. Right, and the impending loss of a child is definitely one of those. Right, and this is very much a, a situation where we get to see the servants of the of the mythos. Uh, you know, another side of them, you know, we're used to seeing the cultists who are there, you know, just worshiping them because they're supposed to be gods and whatnot. And they're all, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they're just very zealous about it. 
And then right. you have people who are like, well, you know, I got something out of the deal. Yeah, they're like the, the Amway salesmen of the, you know, of the cult set. I've got no love for the Empire, but I've just made a deal that'll keep them out of here for a very long time. <laughs> I gave you calling. I gave <laughs> Darth Vader a Colt 45. <laughs> You know, and and yeah, there is that. There's also that aspect there that's kind of underlying the whole narrative of, okay, when is the deal going to be altered? Right. And no matter where I go, that phone follows me. That phone loves you, man. Yeah. All right. And that brings us to the final story on the list. Uh, but only because I love you, by our good friend and playmate. Molly Tanzer. Yes. So, full disclosure, Molly's a friend of the show. Molly plays Call of Cthulhu with us. Well, she plays Call of Cthulhu with us. I don't know if she's a friend of the show. Oh, <laughs> that's enough to be a friend of the show. Um, fortunately, we don't have to say anything bad about Molly because it's a great fucking story. <laughs> we lucked out on this one. <laughs> yeah, this is probably... I. I I think this is probably the best so far in the anthology. Yeah, it's really this good. one has just a breakneck pacing. Um, that you you rarely find in a lot of stories. This is a straight up pulp action adventure story. This is a story that lets you know why Molly was um, editor of Swords versus Cthulhu. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, I think you even mentioned that this story would have been perfect. Oh, yeah. Um, what we have is we have a bunch of, uh, a couple of treasure hunters. Uh, one of them, a, a doctor from Mali, I believe uh, it was. And, you know, ousted from the academy. One for being a woman, two for being dark-skinned. Uh, really shit on by society. Right. Um, and you have her companion, who is a ne'er-do-well. Uh, also shit upon by society um, as and they join up together as fort treasure hunters right um, these are these are not uh, you know the scientist type protagonists that we're you know normally used to they're not stuffed shirt type of folks no, you have like these Indiana are Jones yeah these are very Indiana Swash. Jones type characters swashbucklers. And uh, not, a, not afraid to get their hands dirty, not afraid to break the law. They're the very roguish kind of characters. The best part is they hook up with Richie <laughs> as their guy. <laughs> yes, they 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 hook up. They they are foraying into onto the plateau of Ling uh, in search of fame and fortune and treasure and all that glitters. Um, and, and we open up, and it's the once again, it's balls to the wall in in, in a true Indiana Jones uh, swashbuckling adventure fashion. Our characters are running the fuck away from hyenas. Yes, jackals. Jackals. Excuse me. That's okay. Yes, and it, the, the story is told from the perspective of their Sherpa, mm-hmm. um, who is had an encounter himself with a color out of space. Right. He survived and, your train to Shanghai scenario. Yes. And he, he basically um, 
became mute. Mm-hmm. And he was, I don't know what the technical term for it, uh, he was one of those guys who was able to um, sense, interpret other senses as color. Yeah, uh, he, is a, he has a bit of a synth- synthesia. Okay, there you go. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Sounds, numbers, that. other concepts were colors to him. He lost that as a result with this encounter. Um, but so he, he gained something else. He gained the ability to see colors only when the person he was looking at was about to die. Yes. Or was going to die soon. Mm-hmm. And running from the jackals, they fall into this, this burial cairn. And more hijinks ensue as they, they find the treasure room. But they're it's, looking for the, the, the lost toe tomb of, of the Warrior Queens. Yeah, the Warrior Queens of Lang. Yeah, great stuff. And they find one. <laughs> Oops. Damn that luck. <laughs> they, they happen to find the one that has the, the jackal fetish. Right. <laughs> the big winged jackal. Because you got to keep with the theme. Yes. Well, I mean, it makes sense if they're in jackal territory. The warrior queen of that territory would probably have something to do with jackals. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. Probably pet jackals, things like that. Jackals. Uh, jackals are a very striking image. Right. I mean, they're like Dobermans. Yeah. And so big. Dobermans. We find the we find the great treasure of the warrior queen. And it is great treasure. I mean, it is. It's a fantastic fucking treasure. I mean, you know, it is the stuff any D and D party dreams of. Yes. Um, there's, you know, gold and weapons and all kinds of stuff. And but in in typical Lovecraftian fashion, there's always the idol, and the idol is bad. They could have gotten out of there. With as much bling as they could carry and been super rich, but nope, she had to have that idol. Yeah, the idol not only is it bad, but it also has it's a focus of greed. Mm-hmm. Because it is the most beautiful thing in the room. And why That's would you right. It's it's very much a my precious. Yes, and it definitely plays onto the greed. And greed is the theme of the day. And these women don't make bones about it. I mean, they're not there to write a monograph on the cultural history of the jackal people and the right. queens of Lang. No, they want the loot. The words, this belongs in a museum, were <laughs> oh, never uttered. <laughs> uh, you know, this belongs on my bookshelf. It, it belongs in the museum if they pay me handsomely for it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'm putting this above my fireplace. Right. Oh, that idol wasn't getting sold anywhere. No. No. This is this is going right in the middle of my dining room table. <laughs> and you better not touch it. I think that idol's going in the, on the nightstand. <laughs> that idol's like always within hand's reach. Yeah, she's a doctor. She's going to cut her own abdomen open and surgically implant the idol in herself. Yeah. And, and carry it around with her all the time. 
And as soon as you get an artifact that has that kind of effect on people, you automatically know shit's about to get fucked up. Right. Well, when when uh, the the guy I want to call him Richie, when uh, the doctor and the guy discovered the, the treasure chamber, mm-hmm. he immediately sees the color around him. Mm-hmm. He is his name is Krishna, by the way. Yes, his name is Krishna. I want to call him Richie. Did you read the story in Richie's uh, cadence? I did. <laughs> so our team our, our brave band of adventurers gather up as much treasure as they can carry uh, more than really any normal group of people could carry because no, Krishna they, they, is exceptionally strong yes. and, and they jettison a lot of unnecessary crap to yeah you know corsets and underwear and yeah, extra pairs of socks and that sort of thing well it's funny because they they they're like, well, I realize why people don't bring this stuff along on these expeditions. Next time, we won't. Right. It's an object lesson. Yeah. So it's it's funny because it's like first time adventurers who think they know everything about there is to know about adventuring. And they're learning as they go along. Unfortunately, they got the big curve wrong. Right. Exactly. Um Yep, they get out of the they get out of the tomb. They are once again beset by jackals. I'm um, not, yes, jackals. Jackals. And we have this brilliant final battle between our heroes and the jackals. Uh, it's a war of attrition. They're down to only a few hit points, and yeah, then it, the it boss nice monster fight. arrives. It is a nice fight. Um, and then the boss monster arrives. And and what exactly happens, we are not shown. All of that happens off camera because our narrator conveniently passes out. In the fine Lovecraftian tradition. In the fine Lovecraftian tradition of narrators. Oh, do you know that the boss monster is after one thing? Uh, yes, the idol in, that's made in its own image. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. You too can have a monster summoning idol. Don't All you have to do is go to Ling and fall in a hole. Just gotta read read the uh, label. Do not remove from treasure room. That's right. Do not remove this tag from the treasure room under penalty of law. Oh no! I ripped the tag off my mattress. That's right. This is what happens. They, exactly. This is this is the Lovecraftian equivalent of ripping the tag off your mattress. The, jackal, the jackals are the sealy police. The the jackal the jackal gods will come and, and, and get you. Because those fucking tags are there for a reason. They're running away going, but my sleep number is fifteen. So Yeah, and then the worst possible endings. We're not gonna give away the endings because the ending has a bit of a punch to it. Um, because because Molly has even though this is probably one also one of the shorter stories in the book, she she has a way of uh, expressing characters in a way you actually give a shit about them. Um, and uh, and I uh, think particularly for me, it's because these characters are so very much like 
the characters we portray when we're gaming. Yeah, and Molly's a gamer, so I mean, yeah. you can definitely know where where she gets characterization from. I mean, they're they're like they're real people. Mm-hmm. They're they're not these ideals that a lot of these characters end up representing. All right, these these kind of. Uh almost generic kind of characters you know, right. stock stock characters effectively right. you know it's certain archetype that, that comes through and it does this this character does a b c and d right and, and you have this this feeling that you're reading about these characters and all of a sudden it just it creeps up on you that they have an emotional depth to them mm-hmm. which you don't necessarily have in, in other genre writings. Mm-hmm. You know, and you and even in other and other writing like this, uh, of of the Lovecraftian vein. You know, you you that's one of the things we harp about a lot is when we run across a story where the characters are, hey, you know, we know these people or you know, it's you know, these are characters we've played or something like that. And in those that really jumps out at us and, and, and gets us, particularly when the the inevitable happens. Right. Yeah, so so without without we'll come up to the point where that that's kind of what the ending's about, but we won't quite get there and you have to read yourself. Right, right. You have to you have to read a lot of these because we left the endings out a lot. You know, yeah. we get Almost to the point of the end. Um, well, and even like you want to, you want to experience the pros, the ideas for yourself. Mm-hmm. You don't want to have like you and me like glossing over stuff and right. picking out what we felt was important, as opposed to what you are going to think is important. Well, yeah, your mileage is going to definitely vary as you're reading this book. I mean, you know, for example, we didn't have a whole lot to say about the child in Night Gaunts. Somebody else might come along, and that be they could talk about that story for hours, yeah, hours, and hours. Have somebody, yeah, somebody's going to be like, "Oh, I was really here, right?" And I'm somebody struggling. turn around, somebody turn around and read Molly's story and go, "Oh, it's action adventure, right?" You know, that sort of thing. But um, oh, and somebody's going to read the the salt thingy. And go, oh, it's just way too personal to be cosmic horror. Or sappy or something like that. Right. Oh, how dare you humanize deep ones? They're supposed to be monsters. Yeah, and that actually, I think, uh, was a critique of, of Emerus. Yeah, fuck that guy. <laughs> it really was. We read it. It was, it was bullshit. Yeah, I actually left a prominent Lovecraftian message for over that shit because it was just bullshit. Right. So that's the uh, the second five in uh, Dreams from the Witch House. Join us next time as we'll go through uh, the next five, starting with uh, Kelda Critch's Cthulhu's Mother. So until then, say goodnight, Gracie. Good night.